Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Doug Rivers, professor of political science at Stanford University and senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Doug, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks. Doug is one of the world's leading experts on polling, which is our topic for today. And we're going to talk about some of the surprising aspects of polling that you don't hear about or read about too much in the paper, where there's sort of a... I'd say a more optimistic view of the scientific aspects of polling than maybe they deserve. Uh, most of us have an idea or think we have an idea of how polls are done. So let's start by talking about how polls get conducted these days, starting with a traditional telephone poll. Well, let's go back a little before telephone polling, which arose in the 1970s. Uh, from about the 1930s when uh, polling started uh, to the 1970s, interviewing was done in person. Uh, so the Gallup organization would send people around door to door who would ask uh, you know, how you're going to vote, what your opinions are on various issues, and so forth. Um, in about the early 1970s, it appeared to be feasible to switch to telephone as a mode of interviewing. Uh, when the polling was done door to door, the method used was something called area probability sampling where you would sample areas and then households within areas and people within households. Um, with telephone polling, uh, it turned out there was no good listing of people because about 30% of the population has unlisted phone numbers. So the uh, most popular method is this thing called random digit dialing, where you'd randomly generate a phone number, call somebody up. If there was somebody available there to be interviewed, uh, you would then select uh, someone within that household, and it worked fairly well for about uh, 20 to 30 years. Uh, in the last 10 to 15 years, it started to run into trouble. Uh, there are endless amounts of marketing calls that compete against uh, phone polling that people don't like. Um, there's been a technological revolution in that people have many more telephone lines with cell phones. Uh, and they don't expect to be called on their cell phone lines by uh, someone they don't know. Um, so uh, that's led to decreases in cooperation for phone polls, which has hurt their accuracy. So it's no longer feasible to get, for example, 70% of the people you call to be polled. Uh, the typical response rates now are 20%, maybe even less. So one answer to that would be, well, you just have to a lot more people, and since the technology is seemingly inexpensive, it's not a big deal. Uh, it's not a big deal to make phone calls these days because there are automatic dialers that will dial endlessly. Uh, little known fact is how many phone numbers are selected uh, for a poll, and it's typically 10 to 20 times as many uh, phone numbers are selected as uh, the number of interviews that you wish to do. So you start to worry, are the people you're getting representative of the population as a whole, since they're a pretty small slice of the population. Uh, and it turns out if you look at the samples, they're not. Uh, it's been well known for a long time that if you just uh, call, you'll end up with more women than men. Uh, so you need to do something about that. Uh, you end up with people of higher education, higher income, uh, households where there are more people at home. Uh, so the samples aren't perfect, and they require uh, various kinds of weighting and other adjustments to improve the accuracy of the estimates. I think some people have a natural suspicion of polling, which is misplaced, which is that, well, you don't sample the whole population. It's only a sample. But the, the science of statistics has made some pretty good advances. We have a pretty good idea if we could get a representative sample uh, of how big that sample has to be for it to be reliable. And it doesn't, it's surprisingly small if it's representative. That's right. Right, so what, give, so give a us a feel. So a thousand person sample is good if there are no non-response problems. So if it's really a random sample of the population, 
a thousand person sample is is good to about plus or minus three uh, percent or a little less. So if you could take a random sample and choose one of every three hundred thousand Americans, tiny proportion, right. you'd get. And if we're looking at adults, slightly smaller. Um, so you take this tiny proportion of the population, you, right. you talk to a thousand people, and you find out that uh, forty-seven percent of them uh, favor uh, Barack Obama, and you'd be. 95% confident then that the real number is between 50 and 44. Right. Only 1,000 people would let you be that confident. And it really doesn't depend on how large the total population is. 1,000 will work equally well for uh, China, for China <laughs> as it would the U.S. as it would for Rhode Island. Which is a peculiar aspect of statistics, which we will leave for another time, mm -hmm. but, but which is true. So we ask, we ask 1,000 people, and did I get that right? About the, It's a 95% confidence interval. Right. So when you hear the number, the margin of error is plus or minus 3%, it means that 95% of the time, if you grab 1,000 people, you'll be within 50 and 43. But there's In a, theory. There's a chance 5% of the time you could be off by more than 3%, correct? That's right. Um, but that's with a perfectly executed sampling plan. So, so what are the problems with, with uh, and uh, just one more footnote, I, we can make the sample bigger and get right. a more precise estimate. So if we wanted to be 99% certain it fell with, 95% certain it fell within 1% of either side, we need to sample roughly? About 4,000. 4,000, still not a big number. Seems like a pretty plausible thing and national samples mm -hmm. go out and do that. So what's the problem? The problem is, uh, first, I mean, it's the magic of probability theory that enables you to say two things. One is that you take a big enough sample, you're going to get the right answer. That's the law of large numbers. And then to quantify how big the probable error size is, that's the central limit theorem, the two most important uh, theorems in probability theory. Um, the problem is that the sampling plans are rarely executed perfectly. That is, that uh, you don't get anywhere close to 100% of the people to cooperate with you in terms of agreeing to participate in the poll. And you get predictable skews. Uh, there are people who screen their phone calls and won't pick up. There are people who uh, value their privacy and don't want to talk to somebody who's calling them at night. Uh, there are people who don't have telephones. Uh, there are people with lots of telephones. Uh, so in principle, you should overrepresent those people. Um, so isn't that just a matter of waiting? Uh, waiting should fix it, uh, and waiting helps a lot. Uh, so any of the media polls that you'll see reported have large amounts of waiting to address the skews in the sample. Uh, but waiting is something that's not guaranteed to work and adds variability. Um, so if you don't wait on the right set of variables and you don't remove skews that are related to, for example, how people intend to vote, uh, the effect of that is to lead to systematic over or underestimates of, say, the percentage voting for Obama. The second thing is even if the weighting does correct the skews in the sample, it adds variability. And uh, your typical margin of error that's reported in the newspaper ignores the variability added by weighting. Explain. Um, so here's the idea. Um, suppose that in, your, in the population of the U.S., about 11% of adults are African-American. In a typical telephone sample, 4, 5, 6% is, uh, is more typical. Um, that means that you need to double weight the blacks in the sample to make the sample fraction black uh, about the same as the population fraction. Uh, so if the weight's relatively small, it doesn't add much variability. Uh, there are groups that are underrepresented by factors of 5 to 10. So they require weights 5 to 10x, the average person in the sample. If you have a weight of 10 and a sample of 1,000, that means one person is representing 10 people. And if that one person's answer is recorded incorrectly, it moves the whole sample by 1%. Uh, and that... Uh, you know, will obviously kill your margin of error. If you have a margin of error of 3% and one person um, is recorded incorrectly and it adds a percent of error, 
you no longer really have a margin of error of about 3%. So let's, uh, there are effectively two basic problems here. One is the weighting adds a lot of variability, probably about twice what the normal margin of error calculations would suggest. So that if you repeat the same poll at two points in time, uh, the variability is about twice what uh, sampling error would be with a simple random sample. The second problem is the skews in the sample that are not taken out by weighting. Uh, and that adds another component that doesn't go down as you increase the sample size. If you continue sampling in the same way over and over again, the conventional sampling error estimate tells you how much the same procedure will vary from sample to sample. It doesn't tell you how systematically wrong that procedure is. Uh, and so what I've noticed is uh, that there are these SKUs that probably account for 80%, maybe 90% of the errors in polls represent the SKUs in the sample rather than the sampling error. So if we were doing a poll in advance of, say, the New Hampshire primary, of course, some polls got it wrong. This year, quite a few. Uh, You're essentially, saying, all of them did. Well, it's sure. a larger number, 100%. <clears throat> so it could have been the case that, well, it just happened on any one of those polls. It just so happened that they, that group wasn't as representative as, as it might have been, and therefore, uh, but if you draw 95 times out of 100, you'd expect five polls to just get it wrong out of peer-by-peer -peer chance or randomness, but 95 would get it right, and you're suggesting that sometimes even 95 won't get it right. In the case of the New Hampshire primary, there are approximately 30 polls in the week before the primary, and not a single one of those polls had uh, Hillary Clinton ahead of Barack Obama. So clearly there was something systematically wrong that was affecting all the polls. The polls, you know, the people doing them uh, were, uh, you know, professional people using the standard methods that usually work, that have given us the correct answer in recent presidential elections, but didn't work this time. Uh, and why is that? Well, we don't really know, though uh, there appear to be a few things that would have caused it. Uh, the first is that uh, Obama does very well among people with college degrees and graduate degrees. And they are overrepresented by a factor of two or three, typically. Um, and not enough weighting is done to correct for that. A second thing is that uh, it's hard to predict who's actually going to vote in a presidential primary. Uh, if you call people up and ask, are you going to vote? Uh, around 90% of the people will tell you they're going to vote. The actual percentage that they're going to vote is much smaller than that. Um, I looked recently at uh, one major media poll, uh, and their likely voter question was, are you certain to vote? Will you probably vote? Uh, is there a 50-50 chance you'll vote? And so forth. The only people they classified as likely voters were ones who said they were certain to vote. Uh, so the the self-reports you get of who is going to vote in a poll, in a pre-election telephone poll, aren't terribly reliable in predicting who is going to vote. Um, so there, there are a lot of problems that take you away from the theoretical margin of error and give you a bigger, uh, a much larger error than what's reported. Well, I want to come back to the reported margins of error, though, because I've heard you say in the past something that's kind of shocking. Given that certain sub populations, African-Americans, uh, less educated people, uh, or some higher educated people who don't like to be bothered at night, since their response rates are very different than, say, a representative sample, you have to wait. And as you said, you might be waiting somebody twice or five or even ten times uh, their response, counting them as ten people rather than one person, and that that is going to mean that in a sample of a thousand people, the margin of error, which would normally be 3%, is going to be quite quite a lot bigger because you don't really have a sample of 1,000. You really have, say, 900 or something smaller. Don't the polls, don't the pollsters correct their margins of error for that weighting distortion? Uh, it turns out, no. Uh, I looked at 1,300 polls uh, in the presidential primaries in 2008 and fewer than 50 of them were reporting anything other than the margin of error for a simple random sample with no weighting. 
kind of um, intellectually bankrupt, seems to me. Uh, I think it's scandalous. Yeah, morally bankrupt. I'm not sure yeah. which adjective or adverb there. It's um, bizarre. Indeed. And, uh, well, and then it comes to the next question, which is, uh, in a small state such as New Hampshire, which was being sampled over and over again, um, I presume it was even harder to get people to answer the phone. The response rates are not normally reported uh, with uh, media surveys. Um, I think the main reason for that is the response rates are quite low, and the effect of a low response rate is not, uh, you know, there are 20% response rate polls that do fairly well, um, but the implication is that this is a, a true random sample uh, for which the normal statistical theory applies, uh, which assumes 100% response rate. And none of these are, are close to that. Well, and as you pointed out earlier, if there are characteristics that favor one candidate or one viewpoint over another, you have to have some sort of model for how to wait. It's easy to say, well, whites and race race and education matter, but there could be many factors involved, and if you don't know those weights, you can't correct, correct? Well, you can only correct for the factors that you think of in advance and for which you know the correct distribution. Uh, so the typical media poll is corrected for uh, age, race, uh, and gender, uh, sometimes education. Income, sometimes. Um, rarely income. That. Yeah. Uh, and, in fact, is, uses weighting methods that are about uh, 60 years old uh, and well behind uh, what's known in modern statistical theory as better methods of weighting. Why, why is that? Um, I think for a long time there was the belief that the random selection of something like random digit dialing was good enough and it solved the problem for you. Um, Somewhere in the last 10 to 20 years, most polls have gone to imposing quotas of one type or another on gender uh, to fix that problem, and then very primitive weighting to fix the other problems. Um, these problems have gotten exacerbated in recent years as the response rates have varied among groups. Uh, and you know, quite frankly, a lot of the media polling hasn't kept up uh, with modern statistical theory. Now let's talk about another area where the pollster has some um, creativity allowed, which you alluded to already, at least one area that's obvious, which is likely voters. They don't really report. One, they don't report their actual responses because they weight them. Mm -hmm. Do they even report their weighted responses? Because don't they want to weight toward likely voters and they have to have a model for who's a likely voter? Um, well, different organizations use different methods. The standard one is to ask one or more questions of the respondent uh, to identify a subset who are likely voters. Um, the sample is weighted before you filter on that subset. Uh, there's one major poll that calculates a probability of voting and weights by that rather than selects a subset. A probability based on characteristics? That's right, on a set of questions uh, that's asked of the the person being interviewed. The, the problem is the, um, you know, I think people are doing about as well as can be done with likely voter screens. Uh, the, the real problem is when people tell you they're going to vote, a lot of them won't vote. They're telling you that because they think they should be telling uh, people that they're going to vote. So, but I mean, I've We live in a country which has lived with, you know, turnout rates in the 50, mid 50 percent range for presidential elections and under 40 percent for congressional elections. So there are a lot of people not voting, a lot more than will tell you that. But I've heard you talk in the, in the past without naming names that, that some pollsters have an opportunity and an actual uh, reality of budging their numbers to not look too different from other polls. What's going on there? What, where do they have that freedom to be uh, when they're, well, they're going to be risk averse? I, I wouldn't say it's fudging, but uh, everyone in the polling world pays attention to 
other polling that's being done. And you have a choice of what weights to use. Um, and it appears to me, based on if you look at final polls, they're too similar relative to we, what we know their sampling variability is. Um, and that suggests that given the choice of two weighting schemes, one that puts you uh, in the pack of other polls, it's probably, hey, that looks like a better weighting scheme than this other one that gives me a different answer. Um, I'm uh, currently doing a project looking at the actual data, which is archived uh, by most polling organizations at the Roper Center at the University of Connecticut six months to a year after the polls are done. Uh, to look at what the variability is for the unweighted samples uh, and how that compares versus the weighted. But that's a project that's in progress. So, they, But they do report their unweighted and weighted samples, not, not to the public, but to the Roper Center? Yeah, they archive the data at the Roper Center, hmm. um, which I think is a terrific thing for yeah. the media polls to do. Uh, you know, the people doing these polls, I, you know, I... Uh, I would not accuse them of dishonesty, uh, but I, what I think is happening is there's a bit of, well, it's certainly an art, and the actual weighting scheme and various adjustments that you do uh, are ones that are prone to make people look more similar because people are naturally you know, wish to be similar rather than different. But sometimes you'd think they'd want to stand out. I mean, if someone had, let's say, let's take the New Hampshire poll, <laughs> Uh, in the primary, right. everybody predicted uh, Obama would win. If you had been the one pollster who had trusted your original, say, original set of weights and come out in favor of predicting Hillary win, you'd be look like a genius. That's right. So why wouldn't there be an incentive to do that? Well, most of the samples people were dealing with in New Hampshire were fairly small. Uh, I remember talking to one pollster that uh, had something like a little over 100 Republicans in their New Hampshire poll. Uh, and the numbers seemed out of whack and with what everyone else was reporting. And it was like, well, it's, you know, it's just too small a sample. Let's ignore it. Uh, uh, you know, the fact is that if 10 polls rarely get it wrong, uh, that's why the New Hampshire, where 30 polls got it wrong, uh, it was an incredible uh, event for polling that, you know, I think to some extent it's a wake-up call that uh, things aren't as, uh, as easy as they used to be. It's harder to poll, uh, and the results are less reliable. Now, you're involved in something called Internet polling, mm -hmm. and when you hear Internet polling, I think of uh, ESPN asking who's uh, the leading candidate for MVP and and uh, 40,000 Red Sox fans uh, pick David Ortiz, even though he's injured and hasn't played much this season, but they like his name and they like David Ortiz, so they vote for him and they each vote 23 times. And internet polls, now I've noticed, of that variety have a little disclaimer. Sometimes after you vote it says, this isn't scientific, it's not representative, etc. So the phrase internet poll uh, sounds like a bad thing, and, and yet uh, that's not what it is. So tell us what it is. Well, it needn't be. Um, for about the last 10 years, I've been involved in trying to utilize the Internet for polling. Uh, most people are kind of shocked that polling uh, is done over the telephone or in person. Uh, you know, people these days are used to automatic tellers at their banks. You call a business up and you don't talk to a person. Uh, you punch in some numbers and so forth. And so there's an obvious opportunity to use new technology in the polling world uh, by introducing the internet and having people uh, respond online without an interviewer present uh, to be able to show them visuals, um, to be able to interview massive numbers of people simultaneously because you don't have to have a room full of people on the phone. Uh, the problem 10 years ago was relatively few people were on the internet. Um, so uh, uh, one of my Stanford colleagues, Norman Nye, and I started a company uh, now called Knowledge Networks where we recruited uh, a panel of people uh, by telephone using random digit dialing and equipped them with hardware so that we could uh, cover people who didn't have internet access. We'd have the same kind of random selection used for telephone polling. 
Uh, and the company's done quite well uh, and is used for uh, by many corporations for market research, by universities for academic projects, and so forth. Um, after doing that for a number of years, I went back to being a professor. Um, but my reaction was that we weren't getting a whole lot of bang for the random selection. And as time went on, more and more people were online anyway. Uh, the fraction of people who have internet access at home, school, or work uh, is these days uh, probably exceeds the number of people who have landline telephone access when you take out the cell phone only and the people who don't have any telephones at all. Uh, and it occurred to me that there would be a good opportunity to have a different approach than using randomness uh, to get you a representative sample. Uh, randomness is great if, you, uh, if it's feasible uh, because it, it does mean that there's no skew in your sample because of the random selection. Uh, it takes care of all the possible skews that could be out there, but it, if it's not truly random if you've got a 15-20% response rate. You've got to do something about it. I just want to make it clear, it's not the fact that people don't respond that makes it problematic. It's that the people who don't respond are different from the people who do in ways right. that are not observable. So if the it wouldn't be a big deal if, if just people, sometimes you got cut off before you were uh, had a chance to finish the interview because the phone was unreliable. It's just, it, this is a different sort of problem. Right. The, the, the crux of the problem is that the non-random element of selection systematically biases the sample in ways that make it unrepresentative. And since we're doing weighting and various kinds of adjustments to fix those problems, I thought um, we should do it seriously. That is, not to just hope that we'd fix the problem, but to take a rigorous approach. Um, and in particular, to use some things that didn't exist uh, 25 years ago. There are now massive consumer databases that uh, give you uh, fairly detailed information about most people in the country uh, that enable you to form samples that can be representative on many dimensions. Uh, the problem with your typical phone poll is when you draw a phone number at random, you have no idea who's at the other end of that number. So if you dial that number and they hang up on you or they never pick up or whatever, you don't know who you've missed. Um, but in fact, we have very detailed information about any population in the U.S. these days uh, using consumer files and voter files and so forth. And I thought these could be leveraged to use an alternative to random sampling to create, quote, representative samples. So how does it work? What do you do? What, did you, what have you done? Um, what we've done yeah, for political polling is that we uh, usually start with a voter list. A uh, registered voter list gives you the set of people who can vote. Um, so you don't have to rely on self-reports of people being registered or not. Uh, we match that to a consumer file so that we have a set of characteristics on everybody on the voter file, not just their age and gender and sometimes their race, which is on the voter file, but a whole range of information, such as their uh, 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 their income, their home value, um, and so forth. So that's the, uh, the population that we would like to be able to sample from. Our method is to draw a sample from that population. These are not people who've agreed to be interviewed by us on the internet, but it gives us a target sample that is randomly se selected, and because of random selection, no non-response problem, if you could interview these people, it would be representative of the population. We then take a pool of about a million people who've opted in to take um, surveys with us. And we it's find a large group. A very so large you, and diverse group. So Not you, representative, but right. diverse. So you've got a, a million people who you have a business relationship with that they've agreed to be part of your internet panel. Right. And uh, They're not the same people as that idealized registered voter with the consumer characteristics. Right. But since the group is so large and diverse, I can find close matches to the people who I selected off of the voter list in terms of a large set of characteristics that are available. And so that creates a sample 
that mimics the random sample. It's not randomly selected because the people who give us their email address and agree to participate in surveys are not a random or representative sample of the population. But insofar as the set of characteristics that I'm matching on is enough to remove the skews and biases uh, from the set of people who've opted in, that gets me a very usable sample. And in practice, it turns out that uh, it can often beat uh, a random digit dial uh, sample uh, done on the telephone with low response rate. Now, when you say beat, you mean what? Um, well, first, uh, that in terms of its demographic characteristics, it's more representative of the population. Okay. That is, um, we don't just have the right number of women and blacks and young people and old people, but we match the population on a larger set of characteristics. Now, those characteristics might not matter, they in which might. case all of your diversity is and consumer information is irrelevant. That's do, right. Do you have any... But we've also then uh, used it to uh, forecast the outcome of elections. So in advance of an election, we will use this methodology to select a sample and interview them. Uh, and in 2006, uh, the average error on those estimates was quite a bit less uh, than the average telephone poll that was reported, using the average of all the telephone polls. Maybe you just got lucky. It could be. Uh, you know, uh, but it was lucky, I think, 45 times. Okay. It's uh, a good run. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the main difference was not that the sampling variability, which we can estimate, uh, was smaller than the telephone polls. It was that we had removed the biases better. Uh, and, you know, I, I think telephone polling could be improved if they applied a similar methodology. So right now, when somebody does a telephone poll and someone hangs up on them, refuses to participate in the poll, they just call another phone number at random out of uh, the set of randomly generated phone numbers. Well, that's effectively substituting another draw from the same skewed population. What you'd rather do is substitute somebody who is like the person that you missed. Uh, the problem with random digit dialing is you don't know who you missed. Uh, so that's the difficulty of that approach. So you've got this million-person sample. So if you're doing a, a presidential uh, election prediction, you could do something similar in terms of sample size. Are you going to look for 1,000 or so people to respond to, uh, to your Internet panel? Well, every week for The Economist magazine, we run a 1,000-person poll where we track about 30 variables, and then we ask topical questions every week. And those... Uh, those data are available on The Economist website, and you can see what our polls look like. Um, for the election this year, uh, we're running a number of large projects which have samples in the size of thirty to 40,000 people nationally. Um, and these uh, enable you to get state-by-state -state results. Um, if, if you look out, uh, there are a number of websites. Pollster.com is one. Real Clear Politics is another uh, that report uh, all the polls that are being done out there by news organizations. Um, they uh, include our uh, polls. Um, and yours are called? Ours are the YouGov polls. Y-O-U-G-O-V. Yes. YouGov is a British polling company that we're part of. Okay. Um, the biggest set of polls being done this year are what are called IVR, Interactive Voice Response Polls, which use robocalls that's, uh, to generate, to call people at random. Automated. Yes, and then they essentially punch in numbers on their phone to answer questions. Uh, that's probably you know 80 or 90% of the polling being done this year as newspapers cut back on traditional uh, interviewer-run polling, which is much more expensive. So now I've got to <clears throat> look at my caller ID, despite the fact that it's not somebody I recognize, pick up the phone, and then when I hear an, a robot, automated voice, I'm going to play along. That's, uh, a, small, that's a very small group. Uh, the response rates on the IVR calls are low, and most people distrust them, but their record is, is not bad. 
Um, I think it's because the organizations that have been doing IVR calling uh, have paid closer attention than the traditional phone pollsters have to issues of waiting. Um, and so that even though they're starting with definitely worse samples than the random digit dialing uh, polls, uh, and they don't even know who they're talking to frequently. <laughs> right. Because Could be you, you don't have dog. an interviewer there to tell you whether uh, it's a male or a female. It's, Older than 11, right. yeah. Uh, Many 11-year-olds are very savvy politically, though, of course, and represent their parents' views, I'm sure, most of the time. Um, so in advance, in, in, the, in this election season, and by the way, we are um, doing this interview on July the... 16th or 17th today, I can't remember, but we're in the middle of July, for those of you uh, following along at home, 2008. Uh, we're in the uh, sort of summer lull before the convention um, hoopla. Uh, there's going to be a lot of polls out there, and you're saying some of these polls uh, are going to be of the kind you've just been discussing, the IVRs, these robot, what, what stand for again, interactive? Interactive voice response. Then we've got, we've got those, we've got the traditional... Um, Random digit dialing, right. and then we have these internet panels. Who besides YouGov and your, which is your right. group, are doing? Are you the only one? Are there other people doing these? Uh, Zogby runs some interactive uh, polls. Uh, they didn't have very good success uh, running their online polls in 2006. They were quite a bit worse than uh, the IVR, the traditional telephone, and our polling in 2006. It'll be interesting to see how they fare in 2008. Um, Harris Interactive has run some online polls, uh, but uh, it doesn't seem to be very active in that these days. Most of the Harris polls you see are actually telephone polls. So we'll get some additional data. The Economist thinks you're doing the right thing, presumably, but most news organizations are still going with the traditional Polling is that uh, for financial reasons, or they don't agree? They haven't st- thought that your methods have proven and been proven correct yet. What do you think the reason is? Given, given these concerns which you raised earlier, which I find persuasive and frightening, uh, why does anybody still use those polls and pay for them? Which is what people are doing. News organizations are paying real money for people to do those polls when they can pay real money and do use your internet panel. Um. Well, there's some organizations like the Associated Press and the New York Times uh, that will not report a poll that uh, uses non-probability sampling methods. Um, I guess my argument... When you say that, what do you mean by non-probability sampling methods? That is something other than random digit dialing. Right. Um, And, you know, uh, probability sampling is that the respondents to the poll are selected with known probabilities of selection. Um, my general view is they're reporting polls without known probabilities of selection, but they're in denial about that. Um, you, you know, uh, I won't speculate on exactly why. I mean, I've, uh, it could be that they're being conservative, which is not a bad thing for a news organization. Right. It's a new thing, risky, uh, maybe you shouldn't right. trust it. Um, this, the, what we're doing has a relatively short history, uh, but we are trying to be open about it and to uh, explain what we do, how we do it, and to put our results out before elections so people can see them. Uh, and we've gotten a number of news organizations, The Economist is one, uh, uh, a TV network that we're working with will be another this year that are using uh, our polls and are, are putting, um, putting them out there with full explanation of the methodology that's used and letting people decide, uh, you know, indicating properly that this is uh, a newly de- developed methodology. Um, but it's, it's certainly the case that uh, polling organizations, I think, should be more open about their traditional methodologies and what their actual response rates are, uh, what the samples look like before you weight them, uh, and what the real margin of error is. Uh, right, because it's, you know, there's, as you said, there's an art to it, and there's a big reputational return to success and failure. So uh, it's interesting. Part of the reason I guess they don't reveal their weights is they consider it something of a trade secret, their recipe. 
Uh, the other reason would be that if you saw them, you'd be horrified, I guess. It's like they don't want to let you in the kitchen. There could be good reasons and bad reasons. That's right. Uh, now, realclearpolitics.com, I, I, don't, I haven't been to Pollster, but I will. Uh, but I know on Real Clear Politics, they like to average right. a bunch of polls. What you said earlier suggests that that may not be a more effective way of washing out errors. If people are making the same systematic errors, an average, uh, a mean estimate of, of, of a candidate's strength is not going to be any, necessarily any better than any one poll. Yes, but it is the case that if two polling organizations use the same methodology and each did 500 interviews, they would be better off averaging those two, which would make a sample of 1,000 and reporting each one separately. The sociology of news organizations is such that they don't like to average, so these websites like Real Clear Politics and Pollster, and there's another new one that I think does a good job, 538.com, uh, that are uh, using averages uh, to tell you which polls are discrepant and what, how you should interpret the full set of, of polls that are out there. Uh. But you said if they are using the same methodology. If they're not using the same methodology, that is, if they are similar, not because they both are accurate, but because they decided that they didn't want to look too different, uh, then, weight, then averaging is really no more reliable than anything else. Well, in theory, you should average uh, weighting by the reciprocal of the variation, variability of the poll. So if you have a really reliable poll, it should be weighted more than one that's unreliable. Um, and so the traditional pollsters, I've uh, heard Gary Langer, who runs polling for ABC News, gets quite agitated about averaging and these new methodologies like the Internet. And he says, you know, you're treating them all like, and that's not right. Well, how in the world are you going to get anyone to agree on who should be weighted more <laughs> yeah. than anyone else? Yeah, um, the smartest ones, no doubt, the nicest ones. Well, you can use historical records as a method uh, in uh, 538.com uh, is a guy who does baseball statistics, uh, and he's taken some historical data and come up with a weighting equation. Um, we'll see if it does any better than just pure yeah, averaging. That, that's like weighting, uh, I don't know, stock picks based on the past returns of, of um, mutual fund managers. I mean, you've got some possibly some genuine, you've got some variability that's purely random that's just luck. Uh, then you've got, presumably, the losers have learned something and have probably changed their methodology, so you wouldn't want to weight them based on their historic outcomes. I don't know, does it seem? They fired the guy who was wrong 10 times in a row, and the, other, the new guy's used in different weights, so why would you weight him according to the old results? Uh, again, if they were transparent about the methodologies and so forth, um, the Gallup organization at one point in the middle of a campaign shifts from a registered voter sample to a likely voter sample. Um, and they shift their likely voter weighting. Uh, so at the point that happens, there's a bump in those polls that's due to a methodology shift. Um, I'm not saying the methodology's wrong, but uh, there's a whole bunch of unstated uh, things that are happening in the background that create discrepancies between the polls. And of course, there are real events that change, real things. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, there's a whole mythology of folklore about what happens the week before an election. This scandal gets reported, and supposedly that moves the polls. But of course, the polls could just be moving for random reasons. Hard to distinguish. And it, and then, of course, when a pollster makes an error, a pollster always has a story ex post as to why. Oh yes, well this. Three days before I had that prediction, but in the last three days of the campaign, this came out. There was a surge towards so-and-so. Yeah, the, the last refuge of scoundrels in polling is to say it's just a snapshot. Between <laughs> the 24 hours when I polled and people went and voted, there was this massive movement undetected in all other polls. Yeah. Could be. There are cases where there's obvious movement. You see it in a lot of polls. Um, but more frequently the case is the poll was off. If you'd done the same poll at a different time, you would have gotten the same wrong answer because <laughs> of the same problems. Yeah. Um, uh, do you want to say anything uh, about some of the standard polling stories that we hear, two that come to mind that are relevant this year? One is the Bradley effect. 
this claim that uh, Tom Bra is it Tom Bradley? Yes. Tom Bradley was running for governor of California after being mayor of LA. That's right. So there are a number of cases where uh, black candidates uh, were ahead in the polls and then uh, ended up losing or winning by less than uh, the polls showed them. And there were you know, obviously some cases in 2008 where Obama was ahead, for example, in the New Hampshire pre-election polls and then ended up losing. And this is sometimes called the Bradley effect or the Wilder effect. After Tom Bradley, who ran for governor in California uh, in 1982, uh, he's a black mayor of Los Angeles, um, and he was ahead in some pre-election polls and lost. Another case was Doug Wilder, ran for governor of Virginia in the mid-'80s, um, another black candidate who was ahead by quite a bit in the polls and won narrowly. Um, and so the question is, will uh, people tell you uh, that they're going to vote for a black candidate when you poll them, but when they go into the voting booth, they end up not voting for the black candidate? Of course, it's possible. I assume there have been black candidates who did better than their poll numbers, but they don't get, it doesn't get mentioned. But. Uh, right. Um, I saw a study recently that compared uh, a whole range of black candidates, not just those two races, uh, but uh, you know, congressional and Senate races where there were black candidates. Um, and the results of this study w were that uh, there were, was, in fact, uh, an overstatement of the black candidate vote in the early 80s, but it's, it disappeared by about 10 years ago. So that there is no systematic overreporting according to this analysis of the vote for black candidates. Uh, and then uh, he also looked at uh, women candidates and um, didn't find any effect there. Uh, so there is, uh, I think he called it, there is no Whitman effect after Christy Whitman. Um, the, um, Do you remember who the author is of that? Mm -hmm. We'll look it up. We'll put it no, up. We'll I'll put a link up. I'll send you the email as yeah. a graduate student at this conference. Yeah. I was at Go ahead. Um, when I, uh, is this effect anything other than an urban legend? Uh, and uh, one of the claims is that uh, the Bradley effect, a number of pollsters who were involved uh, in the polling in California at that point, uh, very vigorously denied uh, that there was an overstatement of the Bradley vote. Uh, that it was a difference between the absentee and the election day vote. Um, um, and that the election day vote was correctly predicted, but Bradley hmm. lost the absentee. Um, I was a little skeptical of this in 2008 in Democratic primaries. It's, you know, Democratic primary voters are pretty liberal, and it's a little hard to believe that uh, they're uh, averse to voting for a black candidate. Uh, I was a bit surprised in polling on racial issues in Democratic primaries and finding, um, even outside the South, 15% uh, of the voters in Democratic primaries had some racial views that I'd consider pretty uh, conservative uh, and even racist. Um, we tried some experiments uh, both with, at the presidential level. Um, this was an experiment I did with uh, Shanto Iyengar, who's a professor in the communication department at Stanford, uh, where we lightened and darkened Obama's skin to see if there was any skin color effect in reported voting. Uh, we also um, took a hypothetical congressional election race uh, and put a black candidate in, uh, and the same candidate description, but a picture of a white candidate. Uh, and we didn't really find any effects. Um, so uh, there have been some other studies that have claimed to find a few points of effects of uh, the race of the candidate. The bottom line is that, that to go back to our earlier discussion, these, this New Hampshire uh, overstatement of Obama's support probably was due to sampling and probability factors rather than racism. That would be my <coughs> guess. Um, I think uh, between uh, age effects, education effects, uh, those are probably more important in explaining the Obama discrepancy. Uh, and incidentally, the New Hampshire primary was unusual. In the rest of the primaries, there was, on average, no overstatement of the Obama vote in pre-election polls. So New Hampshire was idiosyncratic for reasons we don't fully understand. The exit polls, um, so these are interviewing people coming out of uh, the voting booth. 
did tend to overstate the Obama vote. In New Hampshire, or generally? Uh, consistently. Oh, okay. Um, the, the exit polls uh, are run uh, by a consortium of the networks are quite high quality sampling. Uh, they pay a lot of attention to the sampling and try to get, have about a 50% response rate, so it's much better than a pre-election poll. Uh, but they don't exactly hit uh, the, uh, the election outcome. Uh, they've frequently overstated the Democratic proportion of the vote in presidential elections. That was the uh, 2000, 2000 Both problem. in 2000 and 2004, uh, some people who had kind of naive views of how polling works took the exit polls and said, gee, the, the vote in the exit poll is more Democratic than the actual vote counted at the precinct. There must be fraud. Uh, in fact, those of us who were involved in the exit polling were long aware of a tendency to overstate the Democratic vote. Uh, the fact that it happened uniformly across the country, nearly everywhere, <laughs> makes it a little dubious that in these places controlled by the Democrats there was fraudulent uh, voting. But the networks got in trouble because they predicted core victories in certain states based on exit polls, and I thought they said, well, we're not going to do that again. They were much more careful in 04 in, in predicting, uh, you know, declaring winners before they well, counted a lot of votes. Florida in 2000 was a bit of a debacle that uh, the exit poll was declared uh, shortly after closing uh, as Gore winning Florida. The networks reversed their, uh, their call uh, late in the, the night uh, and then had to pull it back again as it was obvious the election was much too close to call. What happened there? Why, why were they so off? Um, the networks after 2000 uh, did very careful studies of what went wrong, and there were a series of problems, uh, one of which were erroneous data feeds. Uh, so in Volusia County... And, Something we haven't been talking about. Right. And this is... Misentering... Uh, an, 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 the second the data. call in Florida in 2000 the one for Bush that shouldn't have been made because the election was too close, uh, was due to a, uh, a data entry error. Mm -hmm. um, the exit poll in Florida uh, was one that was probably too close to have been called. Uh, no network has made a missed call uh, since 2000 uh, at the state level, I believe. Um, but the, uh, in the rush to be first to call the races, there was some too aggressive calling, and, and since 2000, most of the networks have staffed their decision desks with a variety of inside and outside uh, experts. Uh, it's one thing that I do for one of the networks, um, and uh, has been, I think, appropriately cautious and responsible uh, in the interpretation of the exit polls. Uh, before I forget, I want you to talk about a phenomenon that happens in the media that that um, you hear all the time. Let's say a poll comes out uh, 46 to 40, Obama over McCain, with a margin error of, error of 3%. Right. So Obama could be as low as 43, and McCain could be as high as 43. So a lot of people read that, and a lot of reporters report it, saying, well, it's true, it's Obama 46 and McCain 40, but... When you take count the margin of error, it's a dead heat. Is that a correct interpretation? No. I mean, the, the terminology you often hear is it's a statistical dead heat. A statistical tie. Yeah. All right. Um, the data, your best guess if it's 46 to 40 is that it's a six-point lead, not a zero-point lead. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it is correct that if you're holding yourself to a 95% uh, margin of error, which is a hard thing to explain in a non-technical way exactly what that means, that you shouldn't say that I have enough evidence to say that one candidate is ahead of the other. Um, but of course, it's less likely, uh, you're equally likely if the poll is unbiased to overstate as understate the error. Right, it could be 49, uh, 37. <laughs> right. Uh, you're relatively unlikely to have been at the extreme end of the margin of error. Uh, having said that, the actual margins of error are much larger right. than the stated. Um, so you shouldn't take uh, you know, four or five point leads uh, in a single poll uh, too seriously. 
given that the sample size are going to be in the, the low thousands, in which case the... the well, many state polls are done with, you know, four or five hundred uh, likely voters. So these electoral college uh, maps that we're going to start to, I think we've already started to see right. them, where people are trying to predict not just the national percentages, which are, after all, are irrelevant, but state-by-state state counts are going to be based on very small samples. Some will be. Um, yeah. In fact, a lot are based on the robo-polls, which are very large samples, because the IVR polls are very cheap to conduct. Uh, you know, under $0.10 cents, uh, an interview is the cost. Uh, so they'll do you know, 2000 a week uh, to the point where they've probably dialed through most everybody in a small state uh, by the time the election occurs. Well, but would you trust those? Um, you know, my gut says it's hard to believe that uh, this method uh, is reliable. But in fact, they appear to have performed uh, about in line with telephone polling. It's usually done with smaller samples. Um, so you aren't, I wouldn't trust them to the extent of they have the margin of error that you calculate with a sample of size 2,000 for a perfect random sample. Uh, on the other hand, they're not too bad. Uh, one last uh, polling phenomenon I want to ask you about is the convention bounce. Yes. What, what is that all about, and uh, is it real? Are we going to see it again? It's a little bit frightening to think that people's moods swing by watching a three-day fake love fest. It's such a bizarre thing. What's going on there? Um, well, the convention bounce is the phenomenon that almost always occurs that uh, during or after the convention of one party, that party's candidate gained several points in the polls. Um, and it's a, uh, because the out party always holds its convention first. Uh, that'd be the Democrats this year. That'd be the Democrats. That will mean that the Democrats will have a gain uh, that until the Republican convention, there won't be any offsetting event. Um, it hasn't always occurred, so it's not one of these things that happens 100% of the time. But you know, on average, the convention bounce has been about five points for each candidate. So a net swing at 10 points, which is pretty big. Um, what causes it? Is it that uh, people respond to the sort of phony love fest that the parties will put on, uh, the inspiring rhetoric? Uh, the, the videos of the candidate running through a field with flowers and beautiful mu piano music? Um, hard to believe. Um, and uh, there's some evidence that a lot of the effect comes from uh, the people whose party uh, is having a convention will answer their phone and uh, participate in a poll. And the people of the opposite party who are going nuts having to listen to the phony love fest Kind of depressed. Uh, they don't, yeah. Go they're, on strike and don't answer. Up somewhere. Uh, uh, so one of the things we try to do is to uh, control who answers our survey, so that we make sure that of people who were Democrats or Republicans uh, six months ago, we get the same number of those uh, in the middle of the conventions, um, so that we're not selecting a sample of people, uh, you know, during the Democratic convention that are Democrats who are. Uh, politically energized and are going to go on at least vacation from polling during the Republican convention. Uh, now one thing we didn't talk about we should come back to is in the methodology of the Internet panel, which is uh, the methodology that, that you were talking about where you could control for the characteristics, the logistics of that, you, you reward people for participating in those polls, unlike the That's right. um, random digit dialing. And mm -hmm. they, they are available to be polled. You send out a, t tell us just a little bit before I forget about it. I want to make sure listeners hear it. You send out an email to this group that you want to have answer your your poll. What percentage of the time do they answer that email and fill, go to the internet and then fill out your the poll you want them to? Um, there are subsets of people who are very active who we get 70% response rates. Uh, there are other people who were barely hanging on to who we would get a 10% response rate from. Um, we tend to uh, try to control the number of invitations to people 
so that people who want to take more polls get more without skewing our sample in uh, ways that would bias the results. Um, we do uh, compensate people. That is, uh, they get uh, a reward for taking a poll. Uh, we don't tell them in advance what that reward is. We don't tell them what they need to tell us to qualify for the poll. For uh, the reward. <clears throat> right. So we try to do it in a way that doesn't bias the results, but people on the internet expect to be compensated for their time. Uh, and in particular, if they take a boring market research survey, uh, they don't expect to do that for free. Um, in the phone world, uh, you don't have the name and address of the people you're talking to, and the tradition has been not to compensate. Um, but as uh, marketing calls have increased, people's willingness to cooperate has gone down. Um, and so uh, using incentives like that might help with phone polls. But it, of course, it could introduce other biases. People, It's something you have to be very careful about. Uh, you see some polls, that, uh, particularly for market research, that ask, uh, are you uh, an owner of X, Y, or Z? Uh, and they'll tell you what the poll's going to be about, and there are probably people out there trying to make a living by taking polls. It's pretty hard work because it doesn't pay much. <laughs> um, we also try, um, we only use people in our election polls who've given us their name and address uh, we match them against voter lists to verify that they're registered voters at the address they gave us. Their age is the age they told us and so forth. Um, so there's a certain amount of validation we can do that way. Uh, okay, let's shift gears to the work you're doing for The Economist. You're doing a weekly survey on a whole range of issues, right? Uh, tell us something surprising you found from that work. Um, the most surprising thing that I've found this year has been the shift in partisanship. So from the New Deal through the 1960s, uh, the Democrats had a massive lead in party identification, so about 18 points in, in 1970. That didn't keep the Republicans from winning elections, but it made the Democrats the majority party. They usually won Congress and so forth. Um, Starting uh, in the 1970s and going almost continuously through the Reagan years, through 2004, the Republicans closed that gap, so it was only a few points uh, at the time of the 2004 election. Eighty percent of those Republican gains in the last 30 years have been erased since 2004, uh, including half of them in uh, the fall of 2007 and the spring of 2008. Because we're in the field polling continuously, we see these numbers day in and day out. Uh, so there's been uh, a massive change since the 2004 election that, in principle, should make this a terrible year for the Republicans. Now, the Republicans nominated a candidate who's probably least associated with the incumbent administration as any Republican you could think of. Uh, but uh, it'll be interesting to see if he gets associated with the administration over time. Mm -hmm. I suspect that'll be a campaign technique of the Democrats that they'll try to avoid. It's pretty predictable <laughs> that that'll be one. Uh, the other thing that was um, I thought very interesting this spring was uh, when we polled last fall, um, initially people didn't know Obama was black, and he didn't actually do uh, much better among blacks than among whites because uh, of the Clintons' longstanding ties to blacks. What emerged very clearly by December of last year was that blacks knew Obama was black, and they were very enthusiastic about supporting him. So 90% of the black Democrats, close to 90%, ended up voting for Obama, despite you know, the Clinton, you know, Bill Clinton's and, to some extent, Hillary Clinton's previous strong appeal with blacks. Um, among whites, Obama had the most amazing positives I've seen in years, uh, and in the spring, uh, as Hillary uh, uh, you know, ramped up the rhetoric, uh, those positives went away. So Obama now looks kind of like a run-of-the-mill candidate. Hmm. Not a weak candidate, but he, he certainly doesn't have the sort of uh, magical appeal, even among the Democratic core constituencies that he did uh, last fall. Well, on the surface, McCain does not appear to be a candidate who would 
ramp up the rhetoric. He may find himself doing it, but uh, it'll be interesting to see what he does there. Yeah, you had McCain was a candidate who wasn't terribly popular among the Republican base, uh, that on certainly issues like campaign finance and so forth, which is where he earned his maverick uh, status, he wasn't popular and wasn't trusted by the Republican base. Um, but you know, he seems to have shored up that support reasonably well. Um, but this is a year where the Republican base is too small to win an election. Uh, yep. Uh, so if McCain wants to win, he has to find a way of appealing uh, to moderates and disloyal Democrats. Well, that's been his claim <clears throat> to fame. Is he's an, it's kind of interesting year. We have a post-partisan and a non-partisan on paper. I think it'll turn out differently, but that's the claim. I think it'll turn out being much more partisan by the fall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suspect so. Um, last thing, you've done a lot of polling on economics issues, and uh, my colleague uh, Brian Kaplan and George Mason who we've interviewed in the past on his book, The Myth of the Rational Voter, he claims that uh, voters pretty, the system works pretty well. It's just that voters aren't very informed, well-informed about particularly economics. Right. And uh, they get what they want. It's just what they want isn't very, very wise. Do uh, you have any thoughts on uh, voter uh, economic literacy or anything related to that? Uh, I guess I agree with Brian that... Uh, your average voter couldn't pass uh, Act 10. Uh, you know, if you put out sort of standard views of things like uh, trade and uh, price floors and ceilings and so forth, the average voter viscerally reacts to a problem by passing a law to ban it uh, without thinking about what the consequences of that are. Um, and blames things on convenient uh, targets. Um, so uh, we tried one about a week ago asking people about uh, who was to blame for gas price increases. And the average person probably doesn't know what a speculator was, but it got a fair number, a fraction of people choosing it. Mm -hmm. um, a, <clears throat> a sample of the members of Congress would probably have a similar poll, uh, similar result. <laughs> There may be a connection between yes, those two that's, things. That's correct. Uh, my guest today has been Doug Rivers of Stanford University and the Hoover Institution. Doug, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks, Russ. It was fun. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.